do that each and every year here, and um, always thankful for that opportunity to hear our men uh, up here singing and worshiping the Lord. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open to 2 Timothy 1, which is where we're going to be this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We will be back in Luke next week. If you're wondering what happened to our friend Luke, we have not forgotten Luke. We will return to Luke next week, and we will be at the end of chapter 19. So if you um, don't remember what's going on in Luke, okay, we left off at the triumphal entry. So this would be a good week to catch back up and read chapter 19 this week in preparation for next Sunday. But for today, 2 Timothy 1 is where we are going to be at. There seems to be very little that we can agree about in our culture these days. People fight about everything. Everything. Um, the, the whole Roe v. Wade thing happened this week, which I hope that you've been praying about that. Uh, we as believers, we need to be praying not only for the justices involved and the leaders involved, but we need to be praying that the local church, whatever the outcome of this situation is, uh, is there to step up and to care for families, mothers, children, and, um, and to be... Uh, the light to a dying world, and um, it gives us the opportunity to be able to do that, and we need to pray uh, for life. We need to do that, but I noticed that even within Christendom this week, everybody's fighting, you know, even on Twitter, it was like the, the Christians couldn't agree on how they should respond to this news about the justices and Roe v. Wade, so this is what we do on social media. We fight with each other. You find people that agree with you. You hang out in that echo chamber with them, Okay, get all worked up together, and the second somebody sticks their head in your echo chamber that disagrees with you, your whole tribe just jumps on them. That is social media in a nutshell. Whether it's sports or politics, I mean, just get on Reddit and watch people talking about how to bake a cake, and you'll see people fighting with each other. You know what I mean? Everybody's disagreeing all the time, and yet today... We stop and have something we can collectively agree on. Conservatives and liberals and Democrats and Republicans and commanders and Cowboys fans. We can all agree on the fact that moms are important and that moms are special and that moms are a treasure even after they have left us. And you can look back through American history and see that our greatest leaders from presidents to preachers understood the importance of motherhood. George Washington said about his mother, My mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her. There's a president for you, Billy Graham, probably the most famous American preacher we have had, said, What a comfort it was for me to know that no matter where I was in the world, my mother was praying for me. Even our entertainers understand the importance of motherhood. Denzel Washington is on the record as saying, My mother never gave up on me. I messed up in school so much that they were sending me, sending me home, but my mother would send me right back. <laughs> on this Mother's Day, uh, I want us to spend some time looking at 2 Timothy 1, where we see the Apostle Paul putting uh, just as much emphasis on the impact of motherhood. First and second Timothy are two letters that go together like peanut butter and jelly, okay? Uh, like Mother's Day and flowers. Uh, first Timothy is Paul uh, writing to Timothy and saying to him, this is how you run the church, Timothy. And then as he writes second Timothy, saying, Timothy, this is how you run your life as you run the church. 
And as 2 Timothy begins, you have Paul telling Timothy to guard his faith. If he doesn't guard his faith, he could end up like those who have turned away from the faith. Like those in Asia who have turned against Paul. Like Phagelus and Hermogenes. Uh, Paul doesn't want to see Timothy turn away from the faith and end up like them. He wants to uh, see Timothy protect his faith, to use his gifting to serve Christ. And that is what we'll see in Paul's words here in 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. So let me read for us. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears... I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother uh, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control." Father, we pray that uh, your word would not be snatched away by the enemy from uh, the hearts of the men and women in this room before uh, it can sink in. We pray, Father, that the cares of this world and the love of this world would not choke out the word before it can take root. We pray that the pressure and the persecution of this world would not burn up this word before uh, it can produce fruit. Instead, we pray, Lord, that um, the word would take root, that it would be transformative, and Father, that it would produce fruit in our hearts uh, this morning according to your will as you see fit. So, uh, Lord, give us the ears to hear during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see in this passage is a heritage of faith, a heritage of faith handed down to Timothy from his mother and his grandmother. First of all, you see the love that uh, Paul has for Timothy in verses 3 and 4. Paul loves Timothy as his own son. In fact, in verse 2, he calls him his beloved child. He looked at Timothy as his true child in the faith. As Paul is writing 2 Timothy, uh, it is our understanding that he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He knows that his time is short. He knows he's going to die soon. In fact, it is very likely that when you read 2 Timothy, you are reading what Paul believes are his last words to Timothy. This is the last thing that he is going to say to Timothy before he dies and he goes to heaven. And so he wants Timothy to know how thankful he is for him. He wants Timothy to know that when he gets down on his knees and he prays to God, he prays prayers of thanksgiving for what Timothy has meant to him. If you look at the end of the letter, Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love of this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Paul, uh, uh, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So Demas has left the faith altogether. Titus and Crescens are off doing ministry in other places. The only one that is left with Paul uh, in prison in Rome is Luke. Everybody's left Paul. Some have left for good reasons, and some have left for bad. But in verse 4, Paul says, 
uh, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So as Paul is sitting in this prison cell awaiting his execution, he remembers that the last time he and Timothy parted ways, Timothy was weeping. Timothy was crying. And so he recalls those tears and it just makes him want to see Timothy again. See Timothy one more time before they execute Paul. The young man who was so desperate to remain by Paul's side, now Paul is desperate to have him by his side after everybody else has gone. Timothy seems like a pretty amazing man that Paul would hold him in such high regard, would love him in this way, would talk about him in this way. And there's a specific hallmark of Timothy's life that Paul is thankful for maybe clues us in to why Timothy is such an important figure in Paul's life. And that hallmark is Timothy's faith. Timothy is a man of faith. And it's a faith that Paul calls sincere. Sincere means undisguised. And faith means a conviction of the truth. So what Paul is saying to him is Um, that he is reminded of Timothy's undisguised conviction of biblical truth, a conviction that he trusts in with all of his heart. It's a real faith. It's an authentic faith. It's a faith where what you see is what you get. Timothy is not living two lives. Timothy is who he is. Paul serves the God of his ancestors with a clear conscience. He said that in verse 3. And it seems that Timothy holds sincere faith in Christ with the same clear conscience. In the same way that Paul serves the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Timothy believes the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in the rest of verse 5, we find out that Timothy is not a first-generation believer. His faith is a heritage handed down to him by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And now, by the grace of God, this faith dwells in Timothy. We don't get a lot of biographical information about Lois and Eunice, but we can start to piece things together if we take a look at Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So from Acts 16, we can learn that Eunice, Timothy's mother, was a Jewish believer, and she was married to a Greek man, which would explain to us why Timothy was not circumcised from birth. However, as Paul was about to take Timothy out to do mission work, he said, we're going to be encountering a lot of Jewish people. Everybody knows Timothy's a Greek. And for the sake of our witness and not causing weaker brothers to stumble or having a hurdle that is in the way of the gospel, we'll have Timothy be circumcised because we don't want the Jewish people to go, well, we're not going to listen to this guy. Talk to us about the scriptures. He's not even circumcised. So as a grown man, Timothy is circumcised. So the next time that you are a little frustrated because, uh, because in, 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 in hopes of not putting a hurdle in, in the way of the gospel or not causing a weaker brother to stumble, you need to abstain from something. Okay, The next time you're like, well, I can't have that drink around that person because I don't want to hurt my witness and I don't want to cause them to stumble. The next time you're like, I can't watch that show or go to that place and you're feeling a little down about it. Just remember that Timothy was circumcised as a grown man 
okay, for the sake of the gospel. So whatever it is that you're giving up for the sake of the gospel, you can do it, okay? And you can do it. So let's just remember that. You'll be fine. Lois is either Eunice's mom or the mother of uh, Timothy's Greek father. There is an insinuation that maybe Timothy's dad is no longer in the picture. It could be that Timothy's dad died when he was young and he was raised by his mother and his grandmother. Or maybe they all live together and uh, the grandmother lives with them. That would not have been strange or uncommon at all. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that the faith of these two women had a massive impact on Timothy's life. From the time he was very young. Later in the letter, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we put chapter 1 and chapter 3 together, and what we know for sure is that Lois and Eunice handed faith down to Timothy. From the time he was a little child, he was well acquainted with the Word of God because of how they taught him. And part of Paul's appeal to Timothy to continue on in what he has learned is to remember who he learned it from. You were taught this by your mother, Timothy. You were taught this by your grandmother, Timothy. Continue on in it. You don't want to dishonor them by making a mess of your spiritual walk. This is what a heritage of faith can do for a man or a woman. It compels you to carry on because of who it was that led you to Christ. Paul laid this motivation before Timothy's eyes, but Timothy is not alone. Later in church history, there's another figure who was taught the scriptures at a young age by his mother. His name was John Newton. Newton is most well known for writing maybe the most famous hymn in the history of the world, Amazing Grace. But Newton led an interesting life. His dad was a hard man who lived his life on the sea, and he forced Newton to begin sailing with him as young as 11. At 18 years old, Newton entered into the Royal Navy in England, not by his own choosing, but by his father's, and he tried to desert his duties. He tried to run, and he was dismissed by the Navy to a slave ship, and that's where he was to spend uh, his professional life going forward. And so he started to make his living off of the transatlantic slave trade. But at 23 years old, he was steering a a ship, a slave ship, through a deadly storm, and he cried out to God and found faith in the Lord that night. And he looked at that, Newton did, as his conversion. And yet he continued on in the slave industry for, 20, or for the next uh, six years uh, as he went through his mid-twenties. He did not see incompatibility with his faith in the slave trade because to him it was just a job. But in 1754, Newton got too sick to travel and he decided it's time to find a new occupation. He knocked around for ten years, but in 1764, He settled, and he was ordained as an Anglican clergyman, and he decided to give his life to pastoring congregations. His first congregation was in the little town of Olney, where he met a man named William Cowper. Cowper was a poet. He and Newton became great friends, and they shared a love of hymn writing. If you know the song, um, there is a fountain filled with blood, um, 
that, that flows from Emmanuel's veins. That was William Cowper's hymn. So they became good friends, and they published a book together, Only Hymns, with over 300 hymns in it. One of them, of course, is Amazing Grace. Newton pastored that congregation in Olney, which was incredibly impoverished, incredibly poor, for 16 years before he moved to London to accept a call to pastor there. And in London, the old slave trader really began to feel remorse for the sins of his youth and his involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. So he began to work with the politician William Wilberforce to champion the abolitionist movement and to put an end to the transatlantic slave trade in England once and for all. And Newton is now viewed as a hero, a hero in British history, a hero in church history. A man whose early life was shrouded in shame. He was a deserter. He was a slave trader. But a man who tasted of the grace of Jesus and he became a loyal pastor. He became an abolitionist. A man who filled our hymn books with praises that have been sung to God by generations of the church. So that's the Cliff Notes version of John Newton's life. But behind this great man, there's a great woman. In the world's eyes, she was a weak woman, a dying woman, a tragic tale. But for Newton, she's the hero behind the hero. John Newton was born in 1725. He was the only son of his mother, Elizabeth, and his father, John. His mother was the only daughter of Simon Scatliff. She, she was the daughter of a hard-working East Londoner who made his living um, creating little mathematical instruments and selling them like protractors. And she was raised to love Jesus. Her parents were nonconformists. They were dissenters, which means they did not submit to the authority of the Church of England. Anybody who practiced their Christianity in England outside the authority of the Church of England was a nonconformist, was a dissenter. And this is uh, the life that her family lived. When John Newton was born, his parents were members of Old Gravel Lane Independent Meeting House. It was a little congregation of dissenters. This was his home church. But his mother often could not go because she had tuberculosis. And it wreaked havoc on her body and it often kept her from being able to go out in public or do anything. And for much of little John's life, he sat by her bed as she rested. And yet, her sickness did not keep her from doing the duty of a mom. She would teach John from her bed every single day. She would educate him and she would disciple him. He learned to read and he learned theology. He learned to count, but he also learned about the God who gives the numbers. John Newton said, when I was four years old, I could read as well as I can now and could likewise repeat the answers to the questions in the assembly shorter catechism with the proofs and all Dr. Watts' smaller catechisms and all his children hymns. He also talked about how he understood Reformed theology inside and out because of the way his mother taught him. As I was her only child, she made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me and to bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So as you read about the amazing life of John Newton and the faith that he found as he was steering that endangered slave ship in 1748, understand that the foundation was laid at Elizabeth Newton's sickbed. As you sing the words of amazing grace, Understand that the words are born from the theology that Elizabeth Newton taught her boy in all of those catechisms. 
As you consider this old pastor who befriended and mentored an important and prominent politician like William Wilberforce and helped change the course of history by advancing the cause of the abolitionist movement, remember that it was Elizabeth Newton who mentored John first. John Newton put it this way, Though in the process of time I send away all the advantages of these early impressions, yet they were for a great while a restraint upon me. They returned again and again, and it was long, uh, very long, before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found great benefit from the recollection of them. She stored my memory, which was then very retentive, with many valuable pieces, chapters and portions of Scripture, catechisms, hymns, and poems. Reading about Timothy and his mother and his grandmother, reading about John Newton made me think about my own heritage of faith. The first Christian I ever knew was Martha Howard, my dad's mom. She was deaf and she grew up in a society that made very little provision for deaf and hard of hearing people. For example, there was no program in public schools for her growing up. They just tossed her out after kindergarten and called her names as they tossed her out that, were, that are not even fit to say in the pulpit today. By the time I was old enough to remember, my grandmother very rarely went out in public. The combination of her deafness and her social anxiety just paralyzed her, and she didn't want to go outside. And so when I think about her, I never remember being at the grocery store or at the movie theater or any of those places. I just think of her perched at her kitchen table with all of her family around. And her home was filled with little reminders of who the Sovereign Lord is. There was a painting of a praying pastor. There was a calendar with Bible verses. There were pictures of Jesus. And as a kid, I remember thinking, man, Grandma's religious. Because we weren't. Sundays for us were sitting in front of the TV watching MTV's Top 20 Video Countdown as my parents read the paper and I played with toys on the floor. But once we came to know Jesus and I came to know Jesus, I knew Grandma was more than religious. Grandma was a Christ follower. And the silent proclamation of God's identity from my deaf grandmother was a giant ringing gong at that very young age that turned my attention to the person of Christ. I think about my own mother as I read Newton's story. My mother is an Irish woman through and through who took on an Englishman's last name. She is organized, she is analytical, she is not easily moved. Stone Cold Debbie Howard is how I like to refer to her in my mind. And yet her type A personality did not manifest itself in harshness in our home. It was gentle. Gentle reminders, you don't just leave dishes in the sink. Gentle reminders, you don't wait till the last minute to do important things. Gentle reminders that order is a pathway to flourishing. My father taught all the same things by pleading logic with firmness. But my mother taught it with a softness that made following her wisdom seem like the only reasonable option. My mom wasn't a Christian until I was 14 years old. But once she found Jesus in April of 1999, he got a hold of all that organization and analysis and administration, that rock-solid stoicism, and he used it for his church. My mother had worked her way up with a high school education in the professional world, ran the, ranning, she, ranning. She, ran the, she taught me how to speak English, um, I promise. She ran the entire office for a very successful architecture firm in Richmond, and she left it to give the entirety of the rest of her professional life to the local church. 
and became the church administrator for Red Lane Baptist and kept the books and organized mission trips and went on mission trips and helped the pastors navigate the politics of the church through administration. And for years, when a new pastor would come to Red Lane and they wanted to know how to be successful, the answer from anybody who knew better was, get close to Debbie Howard and trust her to keep your ministry organized. To this day, I get calls from grown pastor friends of mine who say, can you call your mom and ask her a tax question for me? Can, can you call your mom and find out if it's legal for our church to lend out chairs for a family reunion? By the way, it's not. I know that from her. But the thing a lot of people don't know about my mom is she reads her Bible a lot and she loves preaching. My mom loves to go to a conference and sit under six sermons in three days and take it all in. She loves worship music. Underneath all the organization and administration, there's a river of spiritual discipline that's kept the well from running dry. And I'm going to tell you, any pastor who says that when conflict and criticism comes, they don't want to run, they're probably not being honest with you. Not because they want to lie, but because they're probably throwing up a shield and they're scared to show you how vulnerable they are. But on the days when I want to run, it's the rock-solid faith of my mother that's there to ground me. To remember I'm Debbie Howard's son. To remember I get my ducks in a row and I control what I can control and I leave the rest to the God of the ages. To pursue the Lord when things get crazy, knowing that He is steady. Timothy had Lois and Eunice and John had Elizabeth and I had Martha and Debbie. Going back to the passage, you can see the best way that Timothy could honor the heritage of faith that he's been given, the best way that John Newton could honor the heritage of faith he's been given, or I could honor the heritage of faith I've been given, is to do what Paul tells him to do here, to fan into flame the gift that is in him through the laying on of hands. The gift Paul's speaking about is probably the gift of preaching. And the laying on of hands is likely a reference to Timothy's ordination into the gospel ministry, which is a practice that is rooted in the Old Testament. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. When elders lay hands on a man to set him apart for gospel ministry, there's no like weird Harry Potter stuff happening where they're transferring the, the gift of preaching into his body somehow. That's not what's going on. God gives the gift, but the elders lay their hands on in order to say, as the shepherds of this church, we are speaking on behalf of the church and saying this body of believers recognizes a call to ministry on this man's life and we're going to set him apart. And not only can a group of elders not put the gift of preaching into a man's body, the man cannot put the gift into his body and must come from God. But while a man cannot put the gift of preaching into his body, he can waste it. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy to avoid. Don't waste the gift of preaching by cowering away in fear. Don't let the fear of rejection keep you from preaching, Timothy. Don't let the fear of persecution and failure, don't let the fear of man cause you to shrink back from your calling, Timothy. Instead, fan the gift into flame. My wife and I are, are, are big fans of the show Survivor, and uh, we like to watch it. And, and if you know anything about Survivor, when it gets to the end of the season, one person goes to the finals, um, and, and then there's a showdown in a fire-making contest. 
If you go on Survivor and you don't know how to make fire, I don't even know why you're showing up, okay? But uh, they have a fire-making contest. I do not know how to make fire. I have watched somebody do it on television, though, and I know that the fire needs some air, right? And so once they get a little bit of a spark going, a little bit of a flame going, they start blowing on it um, to try to get that flame bigger so they can win the contest. And, and this is kind of a picture of what Paul is calling Timothy to do. He has to do everything he can to give the flame of his gift life so that it would grow, so that it would consume the entirety of his being. It, it would become the thing he lives for. The thing he must do. Fan the flame so that he would become like Jeremiah who said the Word of God was like a fire shut up in his bones. And the way in which Timothy will fan the flame is by remembering the Spirit the Lord has given him. I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. In fact, I wish the English Standard Version would do what the NIV does and just capitalize Spirit. But the bottom line is that the Holy Spirit who the Lord has given us does not bring about fear in us. He will bring about reverence before the throne of God, but He does not bring about a fear of the world and a fear of man in us. Instead, He gives us power. And He gives us love. And He gives us self-control. God has given us the Spirit, and the Spirit does not raise up cowards. If we are cowardly, if we run from the fears that exist out there in the world, it's because we've listened to our flesh and we've given in, not because we are walking in the Spirit. The Spirit's there to give us strength in the face of opposition. The Spirit is there to give us love for our enemies. The Spirit is there to give us self-control and meekness even when we are being treated unfairly. Timothy is going to have enemies as he pastors and as he faithfully preaches the Gospel. Every pastor does. And his inclination will be to run. That's what his flesh will call him to do. And Paul is reminding him that God's Spirit is going to give him everything he needs to fan the flame and to use the gift. And the best way he could honor Eunice and Lois is to take that gift and to use it for the glory of God. To take everything that they taught him and to stand up in the local church, and to herald it, and to shepherd the people through it. It's the greatest way he could pay tribute to these powerful matriarchs that God used to shape his life. I know that this day can bring about a lot of emotions. Some of you are single, and Mother's Day is always a little bit of a tough one, because not everybody understands what it's like to be single and be a mom. Others of you are single and you're not a mom, and it feels even more awkward to you because people just don't understand the life of singleness in general. Some of you remember your mom that is no longer with us today. And there's sweetness in that memory, and there's also bitterness in that memory because you miss her. Some of you are married, and you badly want to have children, and that has not happened yet for one reason or another. I want to say to you as your pastor, I recognize all the emotions this day can bring. And that wherever you are at, God's mercies are new every day. He has mercies for you where you're at on this day. There's grace and mercy for singles today, and for the childless today, for the grieving today. But time will not let me preach application for every caveat that's in the room. You know what I mean? So I'm going to pick three. Number one. If you are a mother, be motivated by the impact that you can have. 
Did Billy Graham's mom know in the early days of his ministry that by praying for her son, she was praying for probably the most famous preacher of the gospel since Martin Luther? There's no way she could have. Did John Newton's mom know she was teaching and catechizing a boy he would grow up and have a prominent role in ending the atrocity of the transatlantic slave trade? That he would pen a hymn that in a matter of 250 years, literally billions of Christians will have lifted their voices of God to? There's no way she could have known. I think about my own mom, who I know has prayed for me since I accepted a call to uh, ministry that, on July 15, 1999. It was the day after I became a Christian. I knew what the Lord wanted me to do. And I know that she's been praying for me ever since. But did she know that by praying for me, she was actually praying for Seaford Baptist because I would end up here and I would be pastoring here? Of course not. She could not have known that. There's no way for a mother to know all the ways God's going to use her sons and use her daughters. But she must be vigilant about acquainting her children with the Scriptures like Lois and Eunice. She must be purposeful in teaching biblical doctrine to her children like Elizabeth Newton. Her life must be a witness to the truth like Martha Howard. Because in the end, you just want to be able to put your children in the best possible situation to fan the flames of the gifts that God has given them so they would be able to bravely serve Him in this world in whatever way He calls them to serve. I know that so much of motherhood seems mundane because I live with my wife. I watch her fold the laundry. I watch her clean and bandage the wounds. That's not always so mundane. Sometimes that's a little exciting. I watch her correct the table manners. Organize the home. For our family, she's the treasurer. She makes sure the bills are paid. Making sure the dog doesn't die. Doing the bedtime routine. Mothers, it might feel mundane, but... In the midst of all that, your motherhood is changing the world. And when it is God-directed, we're talking about a biological vocation with an eternal impact because you don't know how God's going to use these kids. Number two, if you have strong feelings of love towards your mother this morning, I want to say to you, obey the Scriptures. For some of you, mom is still on the earth today. I'm blessed enough to be able to say that. Katie can say that. We do not count that as a small thing. That's a blessing from God. We will reach out to both of them today. We will tell them that we love them. We will tell them their grandkids love them. If your mom's with you today, don't take that for granted. And if she has left you a great heritage of faith, honor her by fanning the flame and serving the Lord without fear. And I know others of you, you're like, I love my mom, but she's not with me today. And as I spoke about the impact of John Newton's mother or Timothy's mother, you thought of your own mother and simultaneously had these pangs of mourning but also had the joy of thanksgiving. And and I want to say to you, it's okay to feel both of those things, but don't let the tension of those feelings paralyze you. The application for you remains the same. Honor her heritage by fanning the flame of your gifting. Put away cowardice. Serve the Lord with courage. And serve the Lord with faith. And then I want to talk to a third group. If you have strong feelings of bitterness towards your mother this morning, I want to say to you, obey the Scriptures. 
I know that with a couple hundred people in this room, it would be no surprise that for every few people we have that are just filled with joy when they think of their mom, that there is probably one or two that says, man, when I think of my mom, I don't feel joy. I feel hurt. I feel pain. For some reason or another, the relationship is not good. Maybe she'll, she's still here. Maybe she's passed on. And maybe you haven't been looking forward to today because you're like, another Mother's Day. What I want to say to you is rejoice in the fact that you have a perfectly um, caring and providential Heavenly Father. His parental care for you is without blemish. And there's a little hint to the perfect parental care of God in this passage. Fan into flame the gift of God. You know, one of the defining characteristics of my mom is she loves to give good gifts. In fact, you might say too many good gifts if you see uh, you know, her house on, at Christmas. But this is what a loving parental guardian does, right? Well, God is the perfect Father, and He gifts us skills and abilities to use for Him in His church. Because He loves us, and He loves to use us for His glory knowing that we find true joy when we are glorifying Him. So for all the pain that Mother's Day might bring because of difficult memories you have of your mom or a difficult relationship you have with your mom, God is there this morning. He is here this morning to remind you of His perfect love and care for you. And it would be really easy to let the bitterness that you might have in your relationship with Mother rob you of joy in your relationship with God. Don't let that happen. Embrace the love that He pours out on you. And the application for you is the same. Obey the Scriptures. Fan into flame your gifting. Don't waste it in fear. The band's going to return up to the stage as we close up. And if you would like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're sitting and listening to this morning and the testimony of uh, Elizabeth Newton struck you. Maybe you're like, man, I need to be more intentional with my kids. Or maybe it's hit you this morning that you don't know the Lord. And you need to put your faith in Him so you can raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You can't do that if you don't know Him, right? So whatever God may be laying on your heart as a result of the Word this morning, this would be a time to respond. And we would love to talk to you about that. You can uh, connect with us at connect at seafordbaptist.com and let us know of any questions you have about the sermon or if you would like to follow Christ. Um, we would love to get back in touch with you and answer those questions and talk to you about how to have a relationship with Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, I pray that um, brothers and sisters in the room, Lord, um, would receive the word and that it would, God, uh, compel us to react rightly to today. Some people call this a greeting card holiday, and, and maybe it is. But, uh, Father, our moms are important. Motherhood is important. Your word places an emphasis on it. <coughs> and so, uh, the holiday aside, Lord, we're here today just to thank you for our mothers. Um, but also, Lord, we know that, um, that that can land in all sorts of ways with us. So I pray that uh, we would not um, run first and foremost to our mothers to find security and to find hope and to find love, that we would run to you. And whatever relationship we have uh, with our mom, 
Lord, whether she's with us and the relationship is good or she's with us and it's not so great or she has passed on. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would respond by turning and looking to you and taking the gifting that you've used, uh, that you've given us and to use it and to serve you in the local church and in the world. And, um, and Father, for, for I know so many in this room who want to honor the memory of their mother or the legacy of their mother, this is the way that we do it. This is the way that we do it, by honoring you first and foremost. Um, Father, I pray that you would um, be with us as we continue on in the service, as we lift our voices, as we sing to you, and that you would uh, get our attention and that you would get the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.